out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of writer and musician. It is David Conway, who was one-time member of... Uh, My Bloody Valentine and was in the early years between 83 right through to, I do believe, almost the late 80s um, and featured on various albums. He was the vocalist, but then from the 90s went into the world that is writing. So anyway, this is the interview. Um, Just to warn you, it contains adult themes that are not ready, but... It, uh, it was recorded in three little sections on Zoom, so I've just had to stick them together in a professional and groovy way, so there might be a little bit of an odd moment after 35, 40 minutes on each one. But don't worry, just relax, enjoy it. Anyway, look, as always, we like to get down to that early, those early influences, and David's going to tell us all about his early influences in music, life, and art. Anyway, David, it's over to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that you say about David Bowie, because I think, yeah, that was very much that for me i guess when i was yeah it would have been back in the as you say i mean we're about the same age i was born in 1963 so it would have been the early 70s and david bowie of course made made a huge impression i mean just the just the scope of what he was doing and just just the how different he was how he appeared so differently to just everybody you were familiar with. I mean, obviously there'd been Mark Bolan already. And I remember probably one of my first real pop memories was, was um, T-Rex with the Rider White Swan and Children of the Revolution and all of that. But with David Bowie, there was, there was, it, it took it to another level. I think the, the sort of other, other worldliness of him, I think what was, what was so captivating, you know, yes. it was, there was, there was something here that was so different from the other types of music that were around. I mean, there was, you know, it, I mean, if you think about it back at the time, you know, you think that, well, what was what was on top of the pops, for instance, it was, you know, middle of the road with uh, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap, and <laughs> uh, we know it blue, so well. Blue Mink and uh, all of these sorts of groups, you know, and the New and, Seekers. Don't forget the I want oh, to teach the world to sing. Who who could forget that? I mean, I mean, so many things were, I mean, so ghastly, really. But but Bowie sort of he sort of transcended all of that, and I and I think that for a lot of people, I mean, for a lot of kids, and I, and I think even for people who are a bit older than kids too, it was seeing that there was there was a style that was taking it away from uh, that that other scene too, which was a sort of I guess kind of folk rock, kind of hippie stuff, things like that, which, you know, I mean, some of that had, you know, some good material in there, I guess, but I I I think it was almost impossible to relate to to say somebody from Ireland or somebody from England, because it was, you know, I mean that expression, California dreaming, mm. was like it, it might as well have been it it was so far away from from any of our experience and particularly in the 1970s when you know that whole idea of the kind of what had been mooted as a summer of love seemed just so so i mean alien 
to to any of the experience you were having in you know sort of small cold countries like this as opposed to you know the kind of worlds that you know all of all of those people seemed to live in yes. you know that that, that that we we were we were being shown i think by bowie in particular and by glam rock in general that there was a really different way to think about your own identity how to present yourself to the world and and it was accessible through what i think made it actually really great for kids was it was accessible through three minute or four minute pop songs but songs that showed real imagination real wit real uh intelligence you know and i mean you you could say that you know you had roxy music as well which were very much part of that too you had this sense that um there were possibilities that seemed in a way very modern you know that there was something about some of the other forms of music that i think felt almost almost a bit nostalgic even though they were current i think that so much of it drawing upon a kind of american folkish kind of tradition didn't really speak too much to you know people living in you know a, you know a council estate for instance or you know a, a, a society that was just so divorced from any of that so you know definitely that was yes kind of revelatory i think it was quite strange because Bowie's lyrics are kind of like magic realism. I mean, they're very evocative, but sometimes, and, and we know them off by heart, but I'm often, yeah, you know, we move like tigers on Vaseline is a great line. Or, you know, I watch the, um, the rivers change their size, but never leave the stream of one permanent source. And it's like those lyrics. I mean, actually, that's quite an amazing song. And, and one when I was about 11, when I heard it, was quite mesmerised about the, the content of it. But also... I'd come from sort of quite a, a working class family who, you know, we, you know, like when my parents got married in the 50s, they sort of sold everything. They never borrowed money. They were that generation. So a record player got introduced into the house in the 70s. And my brother had a few records and there was a few others. And there was one by the Carpenters. And the lyrics of the Carpenters had a profound effect on me at quite a young age because there was all things about, I say goodbye to love. No one seems to care if I should live or die. And it was like, I could see why I liked Joy Division and the Smiths a bit later on in my life. Because, again, they were kind of very evocative songs. I know the Carpenters are quite different to David Bowie. But I think the lyric was quite strong in, in a lot of those songs at that time. And Bowie's, again, you know, I remember getting Changes 1 was that next album or the first album. And it had things like, you know, Suffragette City and John I'm Only Dancing and Diamond Dogs. And it was, it was a very evocative kind of, all, all those songs were just so evocative. You didn't kind of expect it after, you know, just knowing the few like Space Oddity um, and that was probably it, actually. But but that yeah, he did he did have a lyric, but he also had a musicality, which was quite an unusual one as well. Which, as you mentioned, Mark Boland, he his kind of lyrics after. I mean, he had some amazing ones in the sixties with his poetry, but then he he becomes so simplistic as he as the decade That's as true. the years go through into the seventies, where it's like this is this is really getting quite stodgy, Mark. You know, you haven't got that 
there's nothing magical about your lyrics, whereas Bowie did continue to keep that. And then he addressed it in Black Star so evocatively, which was a bit hard to listen to now. So, um, yes, interesting times. So there you go. I know it was a profound. And did you come from a, were your parents a kind of a musical or had musical interests? No, not 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 in the slightest. Um, I mean, my background was... Um, I mean, I was originally I was I was I was born in Dublin, but um, my family moved to South End in Essex in the early '60s. So, so I was brought up in in South End up until about 1971. So, all of my early experiences there were, you know, very much kind of English experiences. But my parents were from, you know, a very working class Irish background. Um, they really had no interest in any of that sort of thing. They did sort of no creative interests or anything of that sort. So, I mean, they, they tended to see me as rather a strange child. I mean, if, you know, to put it mildly, um, I was quite, um, quite insular. I, I mean, I, as, as a child, I liked things like writing and drawing and, and I liked music. I liked hearing music, but I was never really exposed to it that much. It was something that I very much had to sort of seek out for myself. So it wasn't really a, a question of, the, the, you know, there was no sense of encouragement there. But I, I think that's, you know, for people from that background, I think that's quite the normal experience. I think that um, a lot of people's concerns of that generation was very much that they were coming from, you know, quite very deprived backgrounds and they, uh, the 1960s was um, kind of a revelation for them in a way that wasn't about, you know, uh, Timothy Leary or uh, the Merry Pranksters or anything like that. It was about the time now that they had um, economic opportunities that they never have had before. You know, they'd have been the first people to be able to buy their own house, for instance, that sort of thing. So, yes. so they, I think, would have been... I suppose somewhat disturbed on some level or other about seeing somebody whose interests are possibly, well, you look like you might be a bit of a drifter or you might be a bit of a dropout or something like that. And they're, they're, they're a little bit concerned about those things. And also being from that sort of background, it was, um, it was a very sort of strict uh, religious aspect to it. Um, the education I had was, uh, particularly when we went back to Ireland, was with uh, Christian Brothers and the Society of Jesus, and that was all very uh, extremely orthodox. I mean, very harsh, in fact. Um, Ireland in those days was uh, quite different to how it is now. I mean, I haven't been back for so long, I've no idea what Ireland's like, to be honest. But, yes. Um, but back then, it was very much, um, it was like a sort of theocracy. I mean, the church pretty much, I mean, Southern Ireland I'm talking about here, excuse me, <coughs> obviously. But, you know, so th there was um, a lot of, uh, these things were frowned upon, in fact. I mean, to, to not be seen to be joining in with that program was to be sort of quite ostracized or, you know, picked upon, things like that. So... It was, I don't know, I, I must have been a lot more resilient when I was younger than I realized I was because I, I, I felt that 
the things that drew me, I, I, I felt a connection with. And um, I, uh, I was quite uh, tenacious in hanging on to them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just felt that, to me, the world of school and church and my parents, for instance, always struck me that it was, it was very small, very narrow, very reductionist. It seemed to be ignoring the fact that there were, you know, that there was uh, other possibilities, that there was other potentialities, which all of which could be explored, but seemed to be somehow taboo. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, I, I didn't see any reason to recognize or respect those taboos. You know, I think that I think it was one of the great things about music at that time was that it, it did give young people a an opportunity to see that there were alternatives to what was being presented by you know all of the sort of orthodox and sort of conformist programs that were being presented and uh that was pretty much what I ran with. Yes. Well, I think it was quite, it seemed, I obviously didn't realise at the time, but it was quite easy to be quite rebellious by doing a very, doing very little to almost sort of be away from what you mentioned, like the establishment and what your, the expectations, what your life was going to be like, which, you know, with the church and school, which was really strict. And, you know, I remember that being kind of terrified and intimidated at primary school because the headmaster was such a horrendous bully so it was a very weird kind of childhood sort of dreading going to school all that mm. time up to the later age of 11 and then sort of feeling a little bit better but then you know also just remember on top of the pops you know that you know the older generation would always be going oh you can't tell if that's a man or woman anymore just because they had long hair, but they still had stubble and, <laughs> and looked like status quo. But, you know, I don't, couldn't imagine they wouldn't pass off as some drag act, you know, I must admit they did look like blokes, but just long hair. And yeah, I mean, you know, the least feminine people you'd ever meet, but, you know, just that hair thing was enough to push people over the edge. And then you had songs like Alice Cooper's Schools Out, which was just, mm. you know, it was like, you know, watching that with your parents in the room was, was a bit uncomfortable. It was almost watching a slightly sort of soft sex scene, wasn't it? You just went, oh no, just go out and just don't watch you'll just you're just going to talk all over this brilliant song you know so it was a terribly kind of you know it kind of made all those kind of weird relationships quite tense didn't it because because mm. to, to be enjoying it was almost like getting frowned upon even more and oh my goodness what's going to happen to you you'll just end up in prison at this rate you know because it's like you like Alice Cooper and David Bowie so it's kind of strange really so how did you start to navigate then your your sort of self as, as you were you know going up to the age of 16 which I guess is about 1979 so you because I was too to be honest totally too young for punk did you did things like that start to come into your consciousness at all or yeah I mean very much um uh I remember sort of going back to I suppose about 1977 and um you know already you know being very much interested in music like I said and sort of David Bowie and Iggy Pop had been very much very much in the fore of my consciousness and then of course uh Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and all of that I mean like one of the things that was great about Bowie he was he was a great entree to to other forms of music I mean I mean like I first heard of Lou Reed because well David Bowie had produced Transformer 
So yes. I thought, well, I've got to check that out. And thought, wow, this is a terrific album. Then you find out about the Velvet Underground through that. And then there's Iggy Pop with the Idiots and then the Stooges and everything. So, so when punk rock comes along, I'm sort of primed for it, I think. You know, you, you've already got, well, there is this sort of, you might say, transgressive sort of undercurrent beneath all of, you know, what is on top of the pops. I mean, in 1979, the interminable number one was Paul McCartney and Wings with Mull of Kintyre. And that just seems to go on forever and ever. And I don't know how many weeks that was number one. Yes. But it just seemed to last so long. And yes. so when, when, when punk rock happens, and I remember first coming across the name of the Sex Pistols in, in the NME, I mean, and this is before, before even the release of Anarchy in the UK, and there were small articles about them. And, and, and they're always a little bit, there's a sort of ambiguity to how the press are responding to them at that point because i think that within um a lot of the music press at the time if you if you think back to those days the kind of groups that were being promoted tended to be very much of a kind of what in those days they used to call aor as in adult oriented rock and mm. all of these kind of groups they were all really sort of quite sort of bland or quite conventional and I think the idea that there were these, these rumblings that you were already getting as well with the pub rock scene, you had like Dr. Feelgood and you had Ian Drury when he was in Kilburn and the High Roads and all of this. So there was this sense that that, that edifice is, is, is beginning to crack a bit. And I think then when the Sex Pistols really do come onto the scene, I think one of the revelatory things about punk rock at that point is the accessibility it is to say well you know what music isn't just for people who can have access to uh major corporations to buy expensive instruments and equipment to have learned how to play like virtuosos that it may actually be going back in some way to to the roots of all of this which is in a sense it's a, it's it, 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 it's a, it's a voice of disenchantment in some ways, of discontentment, of a kind of a kind of rebellious, a kind of subversive kind of voice, you know, something that isn't going to be easily assimilated into the mainstream. I mean, it it, it was. I, I do seem to remember that just prior to um, the whole explosion of punk rock, that one of the music papers at the time, and I can't remember which one it was, it was probably The Enemy or The Melody Maker, and they, they, they'd printed some sort of an article about what it took to be involved in a band. And, and they were talking about spending vast amounts of money on buying backline equipment, on all of these various extraneous expenses, all of which were so far beyond the reach of any of the kids who had, you know, been sitting in their front room or living in, you know, relatively modern, modest circumstances, let's say, and seeing David Bowie first appearing and performing Starman or any of that stuff. 
And then to say that, well, this is within the reach of anyone who is determined enough to say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I might, I might not really know the ins and outs. I might not really have any real expertise, but there is an undercurrent within this, within this, I would say, large constituency of quite disenfranchised and uh, disillusioned young people who, who, in a sense, were never really being catered for at this point. It always seemed to be it was about a sort of almost rock aristocracy of, you know, the the kind of Fleetwood Macs and the Eagles and those kinds of groups, or else there was this awful uh, sort of disco scene that was just, I mean, if you think about it in 1977, I mean, the biggest selling album at the time was Saturday Night Fever. Yes, that was true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and to, that there really needed to be, I think, something that, young people could really connect with that felt relevant to them yes uh, but it's I mean, in, yeah it's kind of interesting because my my I, I had an older brother who was seven years old and he was really into prog so bizarrely when i was quite young i kind of became fascinated with that prog not really understanding the context of the whole thing but like you were saying it was like you had to be, you know, you had to have the A, the equipment, you had to have this kind of background and education. You know, it was all about the money and the Roger Dean cover. It was just mm. extraordinary, wasn't it? It was yeah. so far removed that, um, but the status quo becomes very, not the band, but, you know, everything becomes very, you know, like the people suddenly in charge of various things, including the music papers, kind of want to keep their glory days a bit like the radio one djs of the 80s mm. you know they didn't want to even though they looked like old men they still wanted to be on radio one being a bit creepy you know they just weren't accepting that actually they were no longer relevant which is which is a tricky one to know isn't it and that's probably the sex pistols coming along or any mm. the ramones must have just mm. been like freaky yeah i think so i, I mean i i mean obviously the most infamous example is the Bill Grundy interview, you know, where, where it, it sort of, and, and the odd thing about that, um, I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware of this, is the original slot was supposed to be for Queen. Yes, so, Queen. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fact that, you know, uh, you've got Johnny Lydon and uh, his uh, cohorts in there, and, and Bill Grundy had obviously as, as I said, probably had a, a few too many at lunchtime or whatever it was that it, it descended into that. But, but the point is it was, and the odd thing is, it, it, it's like the, the legendary 100 Club gig. I mean, that was a regional show. So not that many people saw it on its original broadcast. It was the tabloids that picked up on it that, that you know, made it explode nationally. Yes. But, but I do think that, it, it was something that so many people just, I think, in a way, had been waiting for. And I think that, and as you said, and the Ramones as well. I mean, it's, 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 I think it's very hard to um, overestimate their, their importance. I think the Ramones are extremely important. I think what they had really done brilliantly was to introduce the idea that a rock band were essentially a bunch of 
almost outlaws that they were the bunch of guys who were hanging on the street corner that you know you you probably didn't want your kids to hang around with i mean the album covers and the posters from the time they've got this sort of gang look but it's but it's it's like classic it's it's uh, they've got this sort of classic almost caricature kind of valency about them and the yes. pistols i think in this country had that too I think you know, yeah, and 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 it was kind of strange because I I don't you know it's kind of interesting that that thing about sort of the next musical trend that comes along. Often the people who had been there a few more few years probably sort of think I don't quite get this, and that's that kind of moment. But no one wants to leave it. And it, I remember Nick Kent, the the journalist who started mm. kind of in the early seventies, was saying that people who had been there for quite a few years were still kind of waiting for the Beatles to reform, thinking yeah they'll come back, that'll be fine, or we'll write about their solo albums. They were like, we, you know, and you can see that even though they're probably not that old, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols must have thought, yeah, but that's that's not classic rock, is it? That's not, you know, we've, we've grown up with the Beatles. You can't beat the Beatles. You know, it's like, yeah, but that's that's kind of over, Grandad, even though you're about, you know, it's like. <laughs> but probably, it, about, it, probably about 28. <laughs> yes, 28 and thinking, yeah, but I don't, I, you know, this, because my brother hated it. He just thought, oh, you know, this is, you know, he didn't buy singles. He only bought albums. He only thought, you know, you had to have a this solo and a that solo and exactly. the Roger Dean poster, you know, it was really like, and he was early 20s. I mean, he was just already had that mindset. So it's kind of interesting, really, that, you know, that fine line between it. So as we trundled towards, so when did you start sort of going to live gigs and and sort of seeing your first bands? Was that back in Ireland or was that in London or something? Um, no, that, that, no, that would have been, that would have been in Ireland. Um, it would have been the late seventies. Yeah. Um, the, see, what was very strange actually, see Ireland had a very, very strange music scene. Um, what existed, I think, probably from the 1950s, but certainly well, well into the 70s, was something that they called the show band scene. And uh, this is probably something that is lost in the mists of time. But essentially what this meant was you had these... The, the whole music scene was controlled by a group of promoters who had access to various live venues. And essentially what the live venues were were either like small clubs or bars but the bands that they would book would be essentially covers bands and they were all called show bands so in a sense the idea is they're putting on quote unquote a show mm. but it's a show that is recognizable to the audience so for instance there were lots of Back in those days, people didn't say country music. They used to say country and Western. Yes. So you had groups with names like Big Tom and the Mainliners. So you had these guys dressed up in cowboy outfits. And they'd come on and they'd play old, literally, country and Western standards. And these people were like stars in Ireland. Um, you had people doing um, essentially uh, cover versions of whatever the sort of mainstream pop of kind of 60s 70s stuff and this was it and there was there was almost no way in for any other kinds of groups there was in dublin there were a couple of bars where you'd have some rock bands playing but then again you're very much into your sort of 
what used to be i mean you say r and b now it means something entirely different yes. to what it meant then i was very confused but, about that <laughs> yeah exactly but it was essentially people doing essentially uh, rolling stones covers um the bands like status quo style music that sort of thing so the resistance to anything coming in from outside of that was was incredibly uh incredibly strong um i think that began to break down after about 1978 or so and oddly enough i mean i think one of the first groups that i mean I, i'm in no way a supporter but i'm going to have to mention them anyway uh say the boomtown rats for instance yes uh, there was a group called the radiators from space um these were the sort of generic irish kind of what was Punk what was because I remember Thin Lizzy going on the school bus mm. and Thin Lizzy, you know, were there being you know Radio One, mm. Mike Reed in the morning and and you know that those kind of classic songs, mm. and uh, I mean were the, were the Thin Lizzy a band that people loved at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Thin Lizzy is that they they became successful. I mean, really quite quickly. Um, I remember, in fact when we had just moved back to Ireland and uh, Whiskey in the Jar was pretty much the song that they had out at the time. And that was a, a huge hit that really sort of broke through to a, even a mainstream audience. And I think the fact that they broke through internationally meant that they, they moved out of that Irish scene very quickly. They became, in a sense, uh, an international group very quickly. I mean, I think they will, probably would have been based in London, um, I don't really know that much about them on that level, but I know, yes. you know, that, that they, they, they transcended those origins quite quickly. So, so what was still going on in Ireland itself was still very parochial that way. But I think that, that the breakdown period that really happened between sort of 78 and 79 then happened very quickly. Um, around 79 obviously u2 started to get noticed um they had a lot of big connections put it that way which has to do with how small ireland is and the sort of media structure there with rte which was the kind of irish equivalent of the bbc and the rest yeah some really interesting groups came along like you had um the virgin prunes who i think were they made a huge impact because they were just so different to everybody else and they were i mean they they had on one level a kind of punk sensibility but they were sort of very avant-garde and experimental as well and put on uh they put on shows in places where shows weren't normally put on like uh, um in they would put on art exhibitions and things like that as well and then there were other groups like micro disney which uh coughlin who later went on to form Fatima Mansions. Um, yes. He was the main guy in that. So people like that had sort of created quite a an impact that I think made the continuation of, of what had previously been. I mean, it, it, that, that show band scene that I described, I mean, that, that practically vanished overnight, really. Um, it was... It was sort of almost ubiquitous up until about 77, 78. But by 1980, it's basically gone. I mean, if you, if you were 
going to gigs then you would you would see some sort of band of some description i mean the unfortunate thing was that the way the way things were in, in particularly in dublin was that a lot of people had the idea that if you if you start a band that really you're using you're using uh dublin as a place to sort of get your act together but you're you're setting your sights on london but the the amount of bands that used to leave to go to london to you know try to get a deal or you know build their career it was it just seemed to be that was the accepted route that yes. you, you went there and 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 because of that you had an awful lot of groups really catering to what they thought A&R men were going to want to hear. So if you come to the point of the early 1980s, you've got a lot of groups that are trying to sound like the police or Duran Duran or all of that sort of thing. And these were the kind of groups that um, most promoters or just even the places, the local bars or clubs wanted to book because with the way punk rock had gone in Dublin was that punk groups just got associated with a lot of trouble and a lot of violence. And the point is, there was a lot of truth to that. There was often, I mean, I, I remember going to see, I went to see Susie and the Banshees in Dublin in 1980. And, and it was just crazy. People were just freaking out in the audience, going mad and there was just like a deluge of spitting being directed at the stage. And it was as if the audience or a lot of the people in that audience had become so stuck in their own minds in what they thought a tabloid version of what being interested in a punk rock band or whatever was, that they had to sort of act out this ritual, this yes. ritual of spitting and breaking things. And I remember I, I met, I met Stephen Severin from the Banshees years and years later. I mean, it was in the late 90s, in fact. And I actually said to him, I remember seeing you at that gig when all of that happened. He went, yeah, yeah, I remember that. That actually seemed pretty weird at the time. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, to, because in 1980, I mean, from their point of view and from people over here, well, that was all in the past. Yes. So many people there just couldn't really let go of it. I mean, even when we first started playing gigs, I mean, we were, we were perceived as being a punk rock band, you know, and uh, there was a certain amount of trouble and tension associated with that a few times. Yes. You know, so... It's tricky, but was there a show band, and this is a terrible, I think this is, a, um, if I'm right, a terrible story, because was there one that was kind of travelling over the border in yeah. the 80s and then got pulled to one side and all got murdered? murdered. Yeah, that was that was the Miami show band. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, a major event, a major story. And, and as you say, a, a completely gratuitous and, you know, an, an atrocity, really. I mean, I know it's hard really to believe gonna, that. Yeah. The poor things, you know, just getting taken out. Just um, I know. I know the tension during that period because you know I mean as you kind of you know remember from you know when you turned on the news in the seventies it was it was quite a con constant sort of strikes and unrest and violence and bombings and 
you know, I know there was the three day week, but you know, there was there was just a lot of electricity cuts. We I remember one sort of period, you know, where we get the sort of in the newspaper, you get your timetable when the electricity would go off, and you know, your parents had to get sort of tilly lamps and various other concoction concoctions to light the kitchen, you know, when everyone was so oh, the electricity's up. I mean, it's kind of a weird kind of time and and it's hard to imagine what that could be like as long as well as only having three stations on the TV, as well as just like so limited on the radio as well so everything everything's kind of really amplified though isn't it you know people those gatekeepers have a huge kind of influence you know it's um mm. because they're the only people people are listening to or watching so it's quite a, a time really so yes it's it's weird things are changing drastically and then 79 thatcher gets in things do change drastically don't they we thought she wasn't yeah. gonna last so did well, had you had you left school at that this stage being 79 Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd 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 left school by then. I was sort of drifting a bit. Um, I did, you know, various jobs and things. So then I ended up getting a full time job shortly after that. So I was, I was, I was working quite steadily. So you know, I mean, I was sort of keeping my head above water, so to speak. I mean, I mean the family circumstances that I lived in at the time were quite fraught. There was a lot of, uh, because there'd been a sort of family breakdown and things like that. There was a lot of, there was a lot of financial problems and tension on that, but, you know, we managed to sort of get through that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You in Dublin at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. This would be yeah the early eighties. Yeah. We're sort of talking now about sort of 1981, 82. That's right. So we're in the post-punk period, aren't we? With people like Mm. Wire and the Nightingales, the fall. And I I must admit, um, one of the first songs I remember hearing John Peel play, which had us like, well, this is a bit different to topographic oceans was um, I am the fly in the ointment. And I thought, Oh, I've dis- there's something quite different about this now. And then my curiosity got, you know, slightly pricked. And I think my relationship with my brother became a little bit weird because of I was no longer following his kind of musical kind of path, I suppose. I think he felt betrayed. So there you go. But yeah, so when we had the 80s, obviously 79, Thatcher gets in, then we had the Falkland Wall, then we had the, the endless minor strike, then Greenham Common, and we just thought it was all going to end. So yeah, so this stage, you were still sort of kind of living at home um well at this point now i was i i'd, I'd moved out from there and i was uh, i was living in a bed sit in dublin and um i was just going to my job that i had at the time and um it was around that time when i suppose i just really thought well i've been so interested in music all this time and i just had this sense that i felt like i could do something musically i don't know really what prompted me i think i probably just listened to too many records and thought well yeah i could do something like that yes Um, and i think it's the usual sense of sort of uh youthful bravado probably or hubris i'm not sure probably a combination of both so um i put an ad in uh i put an ad in a independent record shop they used to back in those days used to go in and there'd be ads up on the wall of people looking for people to join bands and all of that stuff. But I didn't see anything that appealed to me. So, so I put up one myself and yeah, I got people replying to me and um, eventually I ended up meeting some guys and um, 
I joined a group and um, we did a few gigs. Uh, it didn't really go all that well. Uh, I mean, it was it was actually interesting. I mean, from my point of view, and uh, it was. I suppose in a way it was encouraging because it was sort of like, well, these are my first experiences of actually going in front of an audience and, um, you know, delivering a performance with other people and that. And uh, I mean, the kind of music we were doing at the time, um, I suppose the closest thing to it would have been like the kind of metal box period of Public Image Limited sort of thing we did about. When did you discover your voice? When did you discover the joy of singing? Um, well, that's an odd thing. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I, I think in, in many ways, it probably I was probably a bit of an imitator to start with. I think I was sort of taking a leap from people like Iggy Pop to a certain extent and Johnny Rotten and uh, that sort of and possibly even other influences that I can't think of off the top of my head. But did I you used to write? Did you used to write poetry? Um, no, no, I didn't. Um, I I really thought about it in terms of writing songs. I, I would have ideas of something that I think, well, that that'd actually probably make a good song. So I'd sort of write down some ideas for it, and um, then meeting other people that were you know, playing music and that and thinking, well, there's something there that we could actually, the kind of ideas that I have sort of lyrically or otherwise, those things could actually mesh in a way that might be quite interesting. Um, It was all very, uh, there was a lot of spontaneity to it. I mean, a lot of the time when we would, we'd do gigs, we would, we we probably wouldn't have rehearsed quite as well as we probably should have done. A lot of it was very rough edged and all of the rest of it. But I think it was, there was a sort of sense of wanting to do something that was a bit different to some of the other people that were around and in a way to be a bit abrasive, a little bit confrontational, that sort of thing. Um, And to an extent it was, I think it was, it was like a sort of learning process. You sort yes. of learn how to get some of this stuff across, how to actually, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it's an odd thing, I think, probably looking back on it now, thinking about the first times I did this, sort of my late teens, because uh, I was actually, you know, actually a very shy kind of person and then thinking, well, I'm going to actually going to stand up in front of a bunch of strangers and I'm actually going to, attempt to sing or at least deliver some sort of a vocal performance and um it it became i guess a, a sort of compulsive thing to do in a way it, yes it, it felt well this seems to be it seems to be going somewhere i mean we weren't you know making money or we weren't getting any kind of real acclaim or attention as such but but it felt like it was it felt like it was worthwhile doing. It felt like it was uh, a means of expression that was not something that was available in everyday life. Yeah. Really. Did you, were you slightly, as most people do, kind of having, you know, like imitating some other band at that time or some other track that you thought, let's let's kind of use this as our 
blueprint and let's see what we you know where this, this one goes yeah i think yeah i think that's always inevitable i think with with groups when they're starting out particularly at that time i think you know as i said earlier that that first group that i played with i think part of the the major influence there did really come from the kind of public image limited kind of style the kind of uh quite abrasive music with the kind of mantra like repetitive vocal that sort of thing of um in a sense not really not really not really being a group to dance to i think that was probably something that was important to us to sort of uh be more confrontational than that but not 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 in a really in a violent way but in a sense of um well you know this isn't going to be like the last group that you heard necessarily you know yes so there was that um did that, you I was going to say, because I mean, in a simplistic way, which I love, um, you know, 83, 83, 83 to 87, you know, I, I put very formative years because that was the years of the Smiths, really, let's face it. And there was this kind of like, oh, you know, I know there's other scenes. There was this new Paisley scene and goth scene, new romantic, that Trevor Horn production sound. But then suddenly there was that feeling like, God, indie pop's really something. This is it ish you know and obviously you know we categorize things Did, were you kind of you know when you saw the early you know the smiths appearing and and you know then suddenly you know perhaps you listen to john peel and you're hearing all these bands like the june brides and the wolfhounds and then the triffids and the go-betweens did, did any of that kind of you know like go, oh that's interesting um yeah it did but i think in a weird way i'd sort of gone down a different route which was probably in some ways more like a sort of goth scene in in lots of ways i mean uh groups that i especially really liked at that point i mean i'd become i mean from a the late from about 79 onwards i'd become massively uh a huge fan let's say of joy division and um of the birthday party and uh i mean Bauhaus, which is probably not a cool thing to say now but you know <laughs> but i i i i make no i make no pretenses at being cool in any way believe yeah me. she's um, in parties is a great song isn't it i think yeah, i think that they had some some very good material i mean i i think they overstretched a lot of the things and they and they became more image focused than material focused but i think that there was some interesting stuff there and uh, group like the Cramps, for instance. I mean, I thought yes. they, they 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 had a a great, just a whole great image, a great sound, and uh, a group group like the Gun Club. And I think the that Gun, yes, yeah, I know that that like I said, probably not all that popular now, but that it, it did seem to exist in its own sort of area. And I think that when I first met Kevin and Colin uh i mean their interests were going in some quite similar ways as well i think that was one of the things that first brought us together is that we were we were interested more in these kind of darker abrasive kind of sounds and sort of experimental kind of sounds as well so it was a kind of combination of those i mean even that kind of industrial sound that was happening at the time 
<coughs> excuse me, where you had groups like Einsatz and Neubauten and Test Department and people like that. We were we were interested in, in, in those types of things too. So we were drawing on some quite broad things rather than I think we weren't really thinking so much in obvious pop terms so much. I mean, I don't mean that in a sense to be snobbish. I mean, we weren't sort of dismissing it that way because I mean, I mean, Kevin was like a massive Ramones fan and, you know, I was a big Stooges fan. And so we were bringing some of that stuff to it as well. So I think we were, we were seeing a sort of collision of various of these things. And, and it was before what you just mentioned this this was just really before the Smiths had come onto the scene and made any impact on those other groups. Yes. So the the general area we were going into was was much more along those those kind of routes, which you know, I mean it's why we ended up being called My Bloody Valentine, really. I mean, you know, it's it very much reflects that that sort of that sort of milieu, if you want to call it that, you know. Yes. And did you have, within the dynamic of the band, was there any particular person who was kind of driving the vision or was everyone quite similar? Was there somebody who was more particularly, you know, like a proficient at what they were doing and had an idea that was just kind of waiting or was it kind of people slightly making it up as they were, you know, learning as it was going along? I, I think at that point, I mean, if you talk about, sort of around 1983 into 84 i think it was very much more a sort of just a general feeling about the kind of areas we were interested in i mean obviously kevin being the guitarist is you know providing most of the music and he's you know you know in a sense writing the music yes but the sort of style of drumming that Colm had. We also had other members of the group at different points, which sort of interacted in different ways. Uh, I think it was a sort of overall idea and a feel that we had. I mean, we were still doing things back then, like recording backing tracks and tapes and using them live as well. So at times it will be, you know, quite a sort of almost experimental kind of sound where we'd all have contributed to sort of quite strange sounding if you could call them oral sculptures which sounds extremely pretentious to say it like that but but the idea that you know there was there was something going on there as a sort of backdrop to everything and then the band would sort of interact with that in terms of playing live and whatever I was doing vocally live so we were we were kind of exploring whatever ideas that we thought were kind of interesting at the time I mean a lot of what we did in the early gigs that we did was often quite spontaneous we would kind of improvise with the material while we were on stage well. yes so. Yeah, because I mean, I suppose there was also those. I mean, I don't know if they kind of came across here into your consciousness. You must have done really. But um, I remember sort of going to see Elvis Costello in the probably the early 80s, and the Pogues were supporting, and then suddenly they become this like, wow, the Pogues. And then you had bands like, I'm not sure when Hot House Flowers suddenly, suddenly mm. sort of sprung up. Were you, were you sort of, I mean, there's quite a lot of a diverse scene coming out of Ireland at this stage. I just wondered if you were struggling for sort of which direction to go for well i i don't think that we ever really felt any particular 
kinship with any of those people. Although oddly enough, I think Liam O'Manley, who was in Hot House Flowers, I think that he actually was in a band with Kevin at one point, quite a while before that. I think I think that might well be the case. I'm not entirely sure. Yes. But, um, the Pogues, oddly enough, even though in a sense being an Irish band, in many ways are a, are a London band because, I mean. I mean Shane McGowan. I mean he's he's not from Dublin. He's from London. He he went to, I think he went to Westminster University or something like that. I mean he'd been part of the early punk scene here as well. Yeah. So they, I mean when they were really getting to be known in this country, we we were already here after having been come from being in Europe. So. So in a sense, we didn't really feel that we were part of a, the same scene at all. I mean, we were, we were much more part of uh, the sort of independent scene that was starting to happen in London around Camden and all of that. And then, um, excuse me, uh, that that particular scene that happened then. So you know, we, it, it it didn't feel like a connection. Because I don't, with a lot of um, bands, especially from Australia and New Zealand, they they have this amazing relocation to sort of London to, because they mm. sort of for various reasons. I mean, did you you also relocated, didn't you, to London in the sort of mid eighties? Yeah. Well, well, what we did actually originally was um, in nineteen eighty four, we we actually made the decision not to come to London and we we went to Holland instead, and we went to Amsterdam. And um, we we stayed there for a while, and then we ended up living in um, a small town called Gouda. And we were based there for a while, and, and we were we were mostly playing gigs around Holland. And um, the main reason for this actually had come from when we lived in Dublin. Um, I, I used to know a guy who was running a fanzine in Dublin and he'd done an interview with Gavin Friday from the Virgin Prunes and he'd been talking to him about, you know, what did he think about um, the music scene and bands in Dublin and all of that. And he was sort of saying, well, he thought, well, Dublin's all very well, but it's a bit of a dead end. And if you really wanted to expand what you were doing, you should really start, you know, thinking about looking abroad and maybe not even necessarily London. Mm. And he said that, well, they'd, they'd made quite a lot of contacts on the continent, especially in, in Holland. And, um, and so this guy said to me, well, you know what, you should talk to him about that and, and, and see, you know, what, 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 that, what that's all about. So I actually met up with him and he, and he sort of gave me a whole bunch of contacts for over there. And um, so we got in touch with some people and, and we, we got some gigs organized and, um, and being as impulsive and as, as impetuous as we were back in those days, we said, Oh, well, why don't we just move over there? So we did. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. um, and we, uh, we ended up there and um, we only had one gig booked. And we'd actually moved to another country to play one gig. Nice. And, <laughs> and so we did that. And then we were, you know, we were like living in hostels and things like that. And we met this Dutch promoter who actually liked what we were doing. And he 
basically told us he knew a guy who was renting a house. That you, you know, you rent a house from him, and there's another place down there you could play. We we just started using that as a sort of base for operations. And what we used to do was just phone up all of these venues around the country and see if we could book gigs. And luckily enough, we were able to book quite a few and get support slots with uh, bands like where well, we played with the Fall in Rotterdam and. Um, uh, SPK in Amsterdam and some other bands like that and um, we actually managed to actually keep the whole thing going uh, despite our own rather chaotic approach to it and then after that we moved to what was then West Berlin Yes, and we didn't really have any we had somebody had told us about a club and a squat and whatever over there that we could probably probably contact some people there which we did and um then again we had to start looking for somewhere to live and all of that but oddly enough we gave a demo tape to a guy and we've been there for about two weeks and he said to us well yeah well would you like to make an album then we went well yeah okay (laughs) and um it's it sounds like a, a bizarre situation strange story but what had happened was that this guy was uh, working with um, uh, a man who had a couple of, he was running a record company. They had a couple of uh, subsidiaries and he was looking to start a kind of independent kind of rock kind of subsidiary. And um, he thought, well, you sound like the kind of thing we'd like to put on it. So we did an album with them. And that was how our first record got made. My God, that's so organic. That is amazing, isn't it? I know because West Berlin has a sort of, especially in that period, you know, because um, had quite a vibe because I know my friend's brother lived there and um, there was a whole load from Britain went or England. I think they all just got jobs on the um, the American Air Force bases and just earned mm-hmm. loads of money. And also then there was this thing that, if, you know, you had to do national service in Germany unless mm. you went to Berlin. So exactly. all the kind of anarchists and left of centre types just went, mm, I think I'll go to Berlin, Berlin. So it kind of had the vibe in the, I went in the 80s a few times and it was just amazing. It was just an incredible experience. Yeah. yeah and I remember him saying, oh, you just, you know, just go out. He said, oh, by the way, you won't get beaten up. And I was thinking... Right. Okay, that's interesting. And it really was the <laughs> safest place I'd ever been. It was just walking around, thinking, "Yeah, we're not going to get. We don't have to be worried." You know, it was like you didn't have to think, "Oh God, it's all going to kick off." It was just like, "No, it's quite a cool place." So, exactly. did Berlin sort of suit the band? And I mean, with it, you know, as as a sort of, I guess it was four of you at this stage. Mm-hmm. In, I mean, did how did you all cope dy- dynamically? Was it just like I don't know, with Nell and I meets the young ones, or did you? Yeah, how did you, how did you sort of deal with it or the comic strip? Um, bad news. So did, yes, how did you were you you know living with each other and and then you know recording the album or writing the album and then recording it? I mean, how was it kind of? In, you know, it must have been kind of interesting at least. Well, well, no, I mean, we 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 actually got on reasonably well. I mean, I do have to say that. I mean. I mean, thinking about it now, and, and as you say, I mean, one immediately thinks, wow, there's a lot of tension of four people spending time together all the time. But but I think that the fact that things were developing, you know, the fact that, yeah, well, you know, we we had the opportunity to make this album. We, um, we'd already had the songs, so there wasn't really a problem about that. And it was all done on a really, really 
small budget and a really tight schedule. I mean, the whole thing was recorded in five days anyway. Um, We were, at the time, we were living at a kind of a squat in a place called Eisnachstrasse, which in those days would have been close to what was the center of the city then. But it was really like living in a quite comfortable flat. And we all had kind of separate places to live so we weren't all like crammed i mean we weren't all crammed into the same sort of room or anything like that i mean chris did you have did you have high ceilings did you think god this is not like england at all because i always remember thinking these are really high ceilings in this Mm. place and big rooms it was just very it just felt very expansive did you have a slightly similar oh yeah yeah it was very much like that yeah this was like a, a you know you know those old big buildings they have yeah. um, in Berlin. Yeah, it was it was one of those. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is that uh, I think a lot of these properties had sort of been kind of left vacant because of the partition of the city. And um, even though they were technically owned by somebody, because of where they were located, their commercial value had been almost reduced to very little because, you know, you wouldn't have... Um, as you said, because you, you've got all of the draft dodgers and everybody else who's come to live here. And, and in, in terms of it being a kind of commercially viable area, it, it's, its value was almost nothing because when the, when the wall actually came down, I remember meeting a couple of the people that we'd lived with there about a year later. And they said that as soon as the wall came down, the previous owners of the property were back immediately. And they basically said, well, you all have to go or else you can buy the property for X million Deutschmarks or whatever it was, you know. So uh, this was like a a place that was in a kind of suspended animation from kind of 1961 until 1989. That's right. No one bought their place, did they? Everyone rented and everyone, you know, you had good agreements because in this country you'd have two months to get out. I just remember the renting system here was just appalling, really. So... Mm two months yeah whereas there they would like well there's no point buying you can just rent and you've got quite good rights did were you starting to get aware at this stage of places in the uk like the living room alan mcgee creation records jesus and the mary chain were things like that starting to filter through and that kind of scene yeah yeah i mean i think it was at that point because this is sort of we're talking sort of late 1984 into early 1985 so i mean the the um the NME and the Melody Maker and that, you, I mean, you could buy those in Berlin. I mean, we used to, I mean, you could even get smash hits, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes, uh, well, I know, you... the, the gatekeepers, weren't they? You know, these are like, yeah. you know, kind of weekly papers, which Americans were like, oh, do you have weekly papers? I mean, and a circulation of 100,000. And then you just had either John Peel, Janice Long, Kid Jensen. So, you know, it was like, and as I always say, you know, every little town and city in the UK has an indie night on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday that, you know, gives you that circuit. So it does kind of get people at least going a bit, you know, to uh, feel it's kind of worth it and they're not just playing to themselves or their family yeah so yeah so what was it like when you started hearing you know jesus and the mary chain and thinking listen to this this is exciting well well, yeah i think that it, it was in a sense it was i mean especially with the jesus and mary chain in particular it 
I mean, I do remember the first time sort of reading about them before hearing them, in fact, because, you know, being there and not here or wherever. Um, and, and, and you could see that some of the parallels were being made with sort of with punk rock and all of that kind of stuff. And then when you did get to hear, say, Upside Down and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Never Understand, you're actually hearing, well, yeah, we're, here we are going into this sort of very you know this pop structure again but it's been delivered in a completely different way we're getting it delivered in a, in a sense that well they're probably not going to like that on radio one you know mm. you can't you can't imagine that being introduced by you know mike reed or anybody like that simon and bates it, and it, it was simon bates well it, it well it might have been our tune you never know our tune. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, but, Jesus. But, but it, it did give the sense that there was something being a bit shook up there, you know. And I think that then, when we came back here, we we, we moved here then in in 1985. So that was around sort of the early summer of that year. And obviously, then it was going, we didn't do anything for a little while because we all kind of sort of came over separately in our own way. And um, there was a sense then that, as you say, with with how creation records were happening, how you know the living room, all these other things, and and you have, you know, you've got venues like the Enterprise and all of these other small venues, you know, the ambulance station and places like that, where 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 there was, in a sense, something very kind of. Um, in a sense, very vital, you know, there's, 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 there's a whole lot of bands all happening or, or seeming to emerge almost simultaneously. Yes. I think it's very much what led to the creation of that C86 tape was, you know, that, that suddenly uh, what, had, what had previously been, I think, quite a, quite a static kind of scene suddenly began to produce all these different kind of variations you know i mean i think a lot of people i mean i mean to just even mention the c86 tape i mean these days i think people will probably think well it was all jangly pop because i think that's it because the the the, the phrase or the, the term c86 gets associated with say the early primal scream or you know the mighty lemon drops or groups like that but they tend to forget that you had sort of bog shed and Stump and the Wolfhounds and other bands like that. Big Flame, Big Flame. Yeah, I, I think Age of Chance. They were there as well, weren't they? They were. Uh, we've yeah. got a Fuzzbox, McCarthy. The I think the Servants. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. And um, yeah, I know it's it's kind of strange because it's you know a lot of it you know like Big Flame. I think I think one member could play quite well, but the other two had no idea. So I think that you know their sound was dictated by. A kind of musical enthusiasm and limitation at the same time, really. So, but I think it was just like, as John Peel would often say, you know, with a lot of those bands, they obviously probably, you know, in, in a cliche way, living in the squat, thinking, well, there's not much else to do. Let's form, let's form a band by mistake, you know, get a John <laughs> Peel to play a John Peel session. And it was kind of, well, we've done it now. We're not that bothered about anything else. We've, we're going to be moving on because, you know, I'm, 
yeah, this was just something, you know, like the ambulance station did sound like mm. a bit of a scene where, you know, it was a squat, people were putting on gigs, you know, a lot of people were passing through, you know, from all over the world, like Australia. I think, you know, the, um, yeah, the go-betweens were sort of hanging out there in the chills. I think they were all sort of congregating from all over the world, you know, this band called The Janitors and someone came from mm. Canada. So I think it was kind of almost like, well, you know, while you're just hanging about, you might as well just plug in and record a record because it's quite good. And, you know, at least you've got something to show for yourself in the 80s. So it was kind of a very fluid time, you know, and I think those having the opportunity to get played on John Peel and have a few gigs in those places was kind of essential, really. I think it mm-hmm. sort of gave people that that bit of experimentation, knowing that they weren't looking to have a Brian, Brian Eno collaboration yeah yeah i think you're very much right about that and and i also think too the 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 sense that there was so much oppressiveness at the time like what you mentioned earlier you know you know that when you look back on it people people i mean in general think about the 80s as, as this sort of time of i don't know it gets presented in a very strange way to us these days of you know uh a time of excess and um, everybody making millions on the stock exchange and all of the rest of it. And they were so easily forgotten, the kind of, you know, the three million unemployed and the minor strike and all of the rest of it. And, and for a lot of people, there was a sort of sense that you, you, you had no stake in that society. And I think that one of the things that was positive about it was that during that, I think, very grim period, and I do think it was a very grim period on that level, that on a different level, on that on that sort of indie level, an awful lot of people were doing things for themselves. They were creating things. I mean, it, it really was a, in a sense, you could say a, a sort of flowering of that sort of punk DIY aesthetic. You know, you you would go to gigs and people were. I mean, there were fanzines everywhere. Everybody was sort of showing some enthusiasm or some involvement for these things you know uh i mean the amount of places that you could play in london back then i mean compared to now yes and it was kind of breathtaking yeah and you know as as people probably in lockdown got got all their archives out from the attic you know it was quite extraordinary seeing how many gigs used to happen in places and how many bands per night and how cheap it was so it was kind of like it was probably easier and cheaper to go out than put the heating on as if anyone did mm. but also during that early 80s there was a sort of a, I thought felt quite beaten down so it was like well actually I mean being signing on wasn't a bad status symbol it was like kind of a oh that's what you do you sign on then there was the exactly. job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes where you if you found that thousand pounds somehow in your bank account then you could get a bit more and have a year as a self-employed something it didn't matter what you know so there was a sense of people you know weren't feeling particularly ambitious but it was just a nice little another year that you could skive and um, just do something that you wanted while getting probably stoned and drinking too much but that that didn't feel like a bad thing because everyone else was doing it as well and at that stage there was also a slight amount of the peace convoy you know that whole kind of the brew crew was starting to develop their kind of lifestyle on buses with mattresses and dogs, which was always a bit grim. But, you know, going to Stonehenge was another kind of, you know, a thing that young people did alongside magic mushrooms and LSD. So it was kind of it was kind of interesting in the 80s. But what you said about how it's presented, I think if Dylan Jones presents it, it's like 
Wham and Spandau Ballet, and you always get, you know, one of the Kemp brothers and Duran yeah. Duran. And then for people like myself, it was just like you're an outsider that that it wasn't going to happen for you in this lifetime, and that you were going to be single and die lonely. And apart from that, it was it was a quite a grim time, you know, and mm. and getting beaten constantly because Thatcher had sort yeah. of done the miners, she'd done, you know, the Battle of the Beanfield. There was there was that sort of sense of like at the same time being presented with people with lots of money and um, big mobile phones and a Porsche, you know, and it felt really even worse because that was on telly as well. So you felt even more of a failure. So I think gripping onto the the youth culture of indie bands was actually quite a big thing, really. Mm, I think so. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it it is strange because to, to think about, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, practically 40 years ago now and, and we're moving into a very, very grim time now. And what's, I think, quite, quite stark is the fact that now I don't think you can see something comparable to that. You can't see that there are, I mean, I mean, may, maybe people have online communities and things like that that perhaps are what are talked about now. But I, I think that sort of degree of involvement and of kind of that sort of hands-on kind of creativity of that kind and of you know the the sort of general involvement in enthusiasm it's uh i don't think that's around now i think that the that the the sort of dumbing down and the general sense of oppressiveness that is being forced upon people now that there, there doesn't seem to be anything there that sort of counteracts that to me you know it, it seems it seems that there's something been something really lost yes. in many ways you know i mean i, I don't want to be too downbeat about it, <laughs> <laughs> you know it, 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 it's just me being really old <laughs> Yes, I know it all. I know it's strange, isn't it? I think it's um, yeah, it's kind of it's it's yeah. The the this period was quite fascinating. But when you went to record the next album, which was like this was a kind of the mid eighties, wasn't it? Geek. Mm-hmm. What yeah. was the the band had had another sort of change of lineup again. Mm-hmm. Was that again? You know, did it was it still feeling like you were in the honeymoon period of this kind of musical adventure? Um. I think so to a, to an extent. I think really what that one represented was it was a real transition because I think it was it was it came between what we'd previously been doing and what we were probably going to do and it was in a sense and and I think anyone hearing that record it it it, it does sound as if it's almost two things happening simultaneously. I mean it doesn't really gel. I mean I mean, to be absolutely frank, I, I think, you know, in retrospect, that we probably shouldn't have released it, to be honest, because, well, for a start, I don't really think that it's really a terribly good record. I, I think there's a couple of bits on it. I think No Place to Go on it works. But I think the other tracks are shaky at best and kind of the emphasis and the tone of them is wrong and also there was a real problem in the recording because one of the things that we did was to go for a particular kind of overall sound and particular guitar sound but what we didn't realize that what we'd recorded on the master tapes couldn't be pressed properly 
So in order to press it, a certain amount of the actual frequency that had been recorded had to be dropped out. So basically all of the actual sound of the original tape didn't end up on the record. Right. This quite strange sound, which really wasn't what we'd wanted. And then there'd been, I mean, the terrible cover, which, you know, after all these years of no qualms about saying the terrible cover was because we couldn't agree with, about what we wanted on the front. And we ended up with something that nobody liked. I mean, none of us. Um, so in a way, it was, it was almost like we were going through a little bit of a crisis. But at the same time, we'd sort of rushed into it. I mean, we'd, 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 come, from, we'd come from Germany and we'd been here for a while. We'd all found places to live and what no i think it was i think it was kind of a bit of a failure for us but at the same time i think that what what we'd done is because we we'd already made the record in germany and we'd come here and i think we were we were quite anxious to sort of keep that sort of momentum going so sort of the obvious thing seemed to be to well make another record don't sort of just sit back and wait for somebody to approach us and what had happened is that when we came here first we uh we, we found a rehearsal room in um euston in Eversholt street and which was also where there was a record label called fever records they were based there so we essentially i mean we got to know the guys there and we basically agreed to put out a record with them through their label so essentially we went ahead and did the recording and they released it so we'd as i said we were kind of a bit running before we could walk on that and i think we were kind of looking at how things were going to develop with us but we were still carrying on some of what we'd previously been doing so we were sort of falling between two stools with it really yes but it 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 worked for us in a way that, well, it man we managed to get some press from it. It actually did sell some copies as well. I think it made a minor little nudge into the indie charts at the time. So overall, it was just part of that kind of development, kind of a bit of a learning curve. So, you know, it, it didn't really help us in an enormous way, but it didn't hurt us either. And I think it, it kept us going to sort of have something out there. I think that we always kind of felt that it's all very well playing gigs, but we always felt conscious of the fact that we should be actually recording stuff as well and getting material out there. So I think it did at least give us the impetus to then focus more on what we were going to do the next time. Yes, you know, and, and, and at that point, we were getting much more into a much more focused idea on the kind of material we were going to be doing, and we were developing more the way we were playing. We were kind of paying more attention to the idea of actually, you know, creating, in a sense, pop songs. You know, mm. Definitely, they were pop, but I think the thing that occurred to us or that appealed to us at the time was well, just because it's pop, it doesn't have to be sweet or it doesn't have to be, you know, typical. It can be quite abrasive or it can be any of these things or, or you know, or, or, or it could even be quite sweet. The idea of a kind of 
at one point I remember we we were, we got quite interested in a in a kind of idea of a kind of bubblegum pop kind of approach, you know, that was kind of a little bit subversive at the same time. These were just ideas we had, and I think it was to move away. At, at, that was a period as well. Thinking about it, between about 1985 and 1986, when there was a very um, there seemed to be a real a, a real return to a kind of very ponderous kind of rock approach in a lot of music. You had a lot of sort of post goth bands that were very kind of groups like the Mission, right? Um, all of those types of groups that sort of came from that, who were, in a sense, I seem to remember them in particular, always talking about Led Zeppelin and always wanting to sort of reintroduce that sort of a a feel, this kind of sort of rather faux epic approach, which felt very alienating to us and didn't didn't seem to reflect anything of the kind of scene that we were moving in, which was very much on that kind of scene that was happening a lot in London with the venues and that that we've mentioned earlier. And I suppose we wanted to do something that reflected the way we were also playing at the time, you know, which was what then led to us when we met Joe Foster, who was um, starting Kaleidoscope Sound Records. And so had he left Creation by then? Yeah. So he, he, he just left Creation, yeah. And I think we met him... Um, we'd, we'd played a gig at uh, the Enterprise. Right. And it was around that time. I remember being introduced to him at that point. And had you met Alan McGee by then? N- no. Well, well, I hadn't met him. I don't know. Maybe Kevin or Colin had met him. But Yeah. I, I just wonder, because you were kind of, I would imagine, you would have been ideal bands. Though actually that comes later, doesn't it? So, um Yes, yeah, I think that, that that that's that's actually after me. Those <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that moment. Yeah. So then, yeah. So Joe, this is his new label, Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. But this was it, really, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So he produces it. Were you happy with this one? Because this is well, kind of yeah. Well, there's there's a little bit of uh, let's say debate about whether or not Joe Foster produced that record. It was, he didn't really produce it. I mean, I'm not saying that to denigrate him in any way. He was involved in the production, definitely. But it was really between us and him and the engineer. We kind of, it was a group effort. Um, I think that... uh, was this we were, Steve Nunn, the other producer? That's right, yeah. Steve Nunn was the engineer on that. You're right, yeah. And right. he was also the engineer on the one that came after. And um, I think perhaps Joe might have had a very particular idea of how he wanted it to sound. And I think that perhaps within the group, there may have been some disagreement about that. Maybe he wanted it to sound perhaps more the way we wanted it. And I think that perhaps maybe some of the conflict there. And when I say conflict, I mean, that's an exaggeration. It's just, I mean, really, it just comes down to, you know, people pushing faders up and down and saying, no, I want it here. No, I want it there. That sort of thing. I mean, it's, it was, there's no, there was no sort of acrimony or 
opprobrium being thrown around there. It was all very amicable. Yes. And I think that really considering the circumstances under which under what it under which it was produced, I think um I think it was a good reflection of what we were doing at the time. You know, um it did I mean when that was released, I mean that was released around October of 1986 and we were playing a lot of gigs all through that period and i think um that was pretty close to the kind of thing we were doing pretty close to how we sounded and how we were presenting ourselves at the time so i think you know we we felt reasonably reasonably happy with it i think i don't i don't, I don't think we don't think anybody had any real major disappointment no. at that level. No. Were you were you surprised not to get on the C eighty six cassette? Because remember the NME NME used to always be bringing out those cassettes, didn't they? As well as seven inch four track singles. But yeah, you would have been ideal for this C eighty six cassette. Um, yeah, it's possible, I suppose. Um, I mean, it never really, really occurred to me personally that you know anybody would have asked us to. Um, I'm sure if we'd been approached, we'd have done it. I'm yes. pretty sure of that. But um, at the time, a lot of the time, I think we were pretty much under the enemy's radar. I think that uh, for one reason or another, we didn't we didn't loom large on their horizon. You know, um, oddly enough we tended to get more coverage with the melody maker and sounds at that right. than we did with the, the enemy. So it wasn't really something that I ever really thought about, to be honest. Yeah. It was, I think we were just focused on what we were doing. I'm not, I'm not sure it would have made much difference to us one way or the other, really. No. Jeezy. Yes, this is tricky. But then, but you're still, I mean, how's the band? I always ask this, but you know, how are you still coping? Because you're sort of now being in a band with this this group for well over five years nearly, haven't you? So it's getting, you know, most bands don't last after five years, do they? Let's well, face it. Well, well, at that point, I think we'd have, yeah, we were going for about three or four, for about four years at that point. And I, and I suppose... At that stage, I think things were going quite reasonably well. Um, I think what began to develop after that, I think any of the sort of differences between us did begin to develop after that record. And I think it was possibly, I mean, not, I mean, not necessarily for me personally. Um, perhaps other people in the group may have felt that we weren't making quite the kind of impact that had been anticipated um i think when we were playing shows towards the later parts of 1986 some of the new material that was coming along i think personally i i was beginning to feel wasn't quite what i felt comfortable with um moving more into a sort of I kind of if I describe it as a sort of a melodic kind of music which 
didn't feel like it was one of my strengths and I, and 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 in a way i didn't feel that it was really a strength of the band i always felt that our strengths had been more towards being a little bit more um rambunctious let's say yes um, rather than being a kind of a group that was really producing you know sort of quite um let's say crafted melodic pop I, I i don't think that that was something we were good at and yet it felt that that was an area that we were being sort of we were being kind of edged towards and and those kinds of songs felt it felt more that we were playing to some of our weaknesses rather than to our strengths i think that when we got to doing the the last ep that I did with the group, which was Sunny Sunday Smile. I think that was about, for me personally, the last point at which I could have collaborated in that material. Right. Because it, I mean, that, I think that record worked reasonably well. I mean, at the time, I was actually quite disappointed with it personally but i think that had a lot to do with my own personal feelings because i was feeling in some ways a bit uncomfortable with the direction we were taking and feeling that i wasn't really in a position where i could contribute what i felt probably needed to be contributed mm. and um and that felt like that was a perhaps a, a kind of last gasp of what i might have been able to contribute at that point and um and then after that we going into 1987 we we went we went on tour with the soup dragons we did a uk tour with them and then we followed that up with a tour on our own which followed on almost consecutively straight afterwards and it was really around the beginning of it was around that period where i began to realize well I've probably gone as far as I can go with this. Uh, that where this will go, it requires a different kind of a singer and a different mm. kind of performer, and which was, you know, pretty much what I, you know, when I, when I actually sort of explained this to the group, said, well, that's you know, that's pretty much how I feel about it. I mean, on top of that, I had. Excuse me, I, I, I had quite a few physical problems as well, health-wise. So that was getting to be difficult. So, yeah. so the idea that we were we were looking at, because we 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 were booked with um, uh, a promoter who was going to be, you know, setting up quite a lot of gigs for us, both in England and abroad. We were looking at playing in Europe quite a lot too, and you know, doing tours and that. And I thought, well, you know, it's going to require a degree of commitments that, you know, I, I didn't think that I'd be really in a position to fulfill that sort of thing. And, you know, I'd, I, you know, it, it wouldn't have helped them and it wouldn't have helped me. So. Well, that um, must've been a, was that, did that feel like quite a moment when you had to, yes, kind of make that decision and, and follow through? Um, well, it, well, it felt like it was, well, something that I kind of had to do because it it, it, it struck me that, well, the, the alternative to that would have been to to go along with, you know, doing more gigs and, 
making another we probably would have made an album at that point and it would have been it would have been you know it wouldn't have been helpful to me or to them to to go along with something like that without the kind of commitment it requires because it, it i mean when you especially when you're doing when you're doing this kind of thing and you know there's there's not a lot of money around and and people are living in you know pretty modest circumstances if i can put it that way yes it requires i think a, a sort of an extra degree of commitment to want to do that and and i think it's it's um it's letting other people down in a big way too you know because if if, if they're prepared to give whatever it takes to that and yet within myself if i felt well you know i i can't match that i can't i can't feel that kind of enthusiasm or or whatever even idealism that takes to do that well it's it, it it's just it, it, it's not a viable option you know it's it's something that has to be acknowledged and and i think it was the right time anyway because to me i felt you know for for various reasons as i said for the way i felt the music was going the way i was feeling myself and all of the rest I, you know it was it wasn't it wasn't really a sort of a, a heart wrenching or a heart searching uh kind of decision it was uh very much having to acknowledge the reality of the situation yes and when and when when you were sort of no longer in the band, how, how did you then sort of navigate your next period? Because I know you've sort of gone on to do quite a lot of writing. Did you, were you able to sort of get yourself focused in the next cha- next chapter, the next part of your life? Well, well, I suppose what that really came down to then was, well, you know, having to just organise the day-to-day of existence, you know, um, I had to, you know, go find a job and, you know, do various different jobs and things that I did, uh, have somewhere to live, just all of the run-of-the-mill stuff of everyday existence. I mean, I was already interested in writing anyway, so, you know, that was definitely something that I thought, well, that, that's something I'll, I'll look into pursuing. So I, I actually began to do that very quickly. I mean, certainly, <coughs> excuse me, within within you know months of having actually quit the band i actually started to treat that as a serious uh, pursuit and something that i really wanted to uh try to try to explore as best that i could yes and had you been in the in the 80s had you sort of been quite into was it sort of fantasy or was it comic adult comics that you'd been into well well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, when I was younger, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd always, I mean, going right back, I mean, going back to the 1960s, even into the 70s and that, I'd, I'd, I'd very much been a, a sort of big comic book fan. I'd also been, you know, in terms of reading, I was, you know, I had pretty broad tastes in reading. I was, you know, very interested in horror and fantasy and science fiction, and those types of genres. And I kind of always figured that, yeah, you know, I had ideas along those lines that I could probably certainly look upon writing some stories or novels or whatever. So I 
essentially decided, well, you know, why don't I try doing that and see see where I can get with it. Yes. And, so has that um, been your your kind of your your main focus, or has has that had to be a sort of a, a side hustle to, you know, for your creative kind of outlet? Uh, well, well, it, it it became it. I mean, it, it it took a while. I mean, you know, it's uh, I probably got into doing that at a time when it probably wasn't the best time in the world to be doing it when there were uh, issues within the whole publishing industry and whatever else where a lot of publishing houses were closing or they were reducing their uh, uh, lists and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, you know, eventually I managed to start getting the old short story and whatever published here and there. And then I had a book of short stories published and then that led into writing uh, comics for quite a few years um, and then continued with sort of writing fiction from that. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, I've still got some, a couple of comic book projects that are probably coming up later this year as well. But yeah, I mean, it's still going. I mean, it's, it's something that, requires a fair bit of work and um i said that when i when i started i mean for instance in comic books when i started writing in comic books there were so many publishers then that i mean the people i worked with i mean only one of them is still in business now right um and uh it's it's the same with a lot of uh book publishing that it's contracted an awful lot for various reasons i mean there's so many other media out there that have basically taken over from the whole the whole world of publishing has sort of gone through a major crisis. I mean, one only has to look at the fact that, I mean, newspapers are almost historical documents at this point, you know, that that, that whole world of print and... Uh, Yes, that is, is very much. Uh, it's one of the great debates I quite have a lot about newspapers because I think there's, there's something about the physical form, but then other people say, "No, my God, you know the the next generation and just never going to buy a newspaper." And it's like, oh yeah, anyway. So um, yes, will it ever happen? Same with magazines. I thought they were going to die out, and then suddenly they've become. I don't know what the circulation is like, but there seems to be a certain demand about it's about holding a physical thing, which I think mm. is, it, it, there's I, more... I, I definitely, yeah, I definitely think it's part of it. I think that it, I mean, you know, you, you can read things electronically and all of the rest, but I don't know. I, 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 I think it's a much different experience. You know, I think that uh, the, the, the format itself i mean it, it it it's it's almost like that whole debate that existed about vinyl and cds and and now about download i mean like now even even a cd is seen as like some obsolete medium you know it's sort of if you're not streaming music or if you're not downloading it well you know or if it's not being chosen for you by itunes or apple or whoever you know all of these things in many ways get lost. I mean, it's, I mean, to go back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, I mean, with how one discovered pop music back all those years ago, an awful lot of what it was about was discovering things for yourself because, yes. because people didn't, th th these things weren't, 
weren't coming at you from 500 different outlets. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I used to, you know, I'd go to secondhand stores and find, you know, some obscure old album and I, I would like the look of it maybe, or maybe it was a name I'd heard, but I'd never heard the band and thought, well, this only costs 50p. I'll see what it's like. Yes, you know, absolutely. There was, was all of that. And, and I think that an awful lot of that has been lost. I think it, the, 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 the element of discovery, I think, is, is very important when it comes to sort of creative uh, endeavours, be it music or writing or, or any form of art, really. Yeah, I must admit, I was um, I was a bit devastated when John Peel passed away because I I kind of trusted him as a as somebody who just spent all his time and he'd get all these reggae records or folk reggae records or African records and you know rock and, and just kind of like oh yeah this is the best one I'll find here and I'll just put it on a show and think, oh that's that's handy you know quite and um, yes and then I'll be in a bit shot really so. Um, I'm, I'm sort of floundering in the dark with that. So, um, yes. So so just going forward then, have you got sort of projects that are sort of coming out, you know, in the next year, publishing-wise? Um, yeah, yeah, there are, there are, um, there's, uh, well, there's, uh, well, the, all, all of the books that I've written are all still available. <laughs> I have to say that. Um, I'm, I've got, um, I'm, finishing a novel that will be out later this year um i can't be sure exactly when but it, it should be before the end of this year um i'm working on a comic book mini series and a graphic novel for a publisher that I, I actually can't really discuss because well not because of me but because the publisher themselves don't want me to discuss anything before they've dealt with their end of the publicity and all the rest but it is something that will hopefully be out later this year too so excellent these are kind of ongoing projects and um you know it's it, it's something that i intend to continue with and uh if i can plug myself here if that's all right yes absolutely if, if anybody's interested in finding out about any of any of that type of work the website is www.radicalrobotbooks.com and there's information there about all of the books that I've done and comic books and stuff that well when things become available they will be listed on that site yeah and you've done pieces for um marvel comics as well haven't you yeah that's right yeah so yeah, that must have felt like a really nice gig. It, it was actually. It was. Um, it was quite a long time ago now. I must admit. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it it would have been nice if it had developed into something a bit more, but unfortunately, it didn't. Uh, the comic book company that I used to work with a lot back then. Um, I used to write. A series that is probably pretty well known called Vampirella. I wrote that for quite a long time. I also co-created um, and wrote a manga series called Vampy, and um, I've contributed to a Australian uh, comic book called Decay, which is published by Dark Oz, and that's somebody else I would recommend people checking out. Is the Dark Oz website? They yes. do some really good science fiction and horror material 
and uh, that's somebody else I'll be working with again in the future. So, you know, these things are they're ongoing. This so. is good. This is very good. And did I mean just kind of lastly, roughly? I mean, if you could have whispered something in your your sixteen or eighteen year old ears, you know, starting out, you know, just as a oh, there's a few things I would just kind of recommend either continuing to do because they're good or just other things that might be useful or things to look out for. Is there anything that you would have said, you know, just through the years, decades of kind of experience and sort of some, you know, life, life lessons and all that kind of stuff? I'm very tempted to say, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, frankly, I think, I mean, if I, was, if I think about it now, it's very interesting you bring that up. Um, I suppose it's really to, what's something Jim Morrison once said, actually, not that I'm comparing myself to him, but he once said something about that you should try to do something that you find frightening at least once a day. I'm probably misquoting him, but that was the general gist of it. And I, and I think that really what that comes down to is, that whole idea that if you've got an idea not to be afraid to kind of explore it i mean mm. it's not necessarily going to be successful i think one of the worst things is fear of failure because the whole point is you know failure is 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 measured in such subjective terms you know i mean to to express yourself in some way that perhaps was might have felt unique to you or might have felt that was something that may have been frowned upon from whatever area or whatever group of people you're around is is going to be something you'd regret much more than than not having tried it i mean you said something really interesting earlier about being able to go out and not being afraid of being beaten up and that's I think probably something that maybe is for a lot of young people today, probably quite a strange thing to hear. But I mean, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, because when I was young, I, I was physically attacked so many times, you know, because of the way I looked and the assumptions people made based on that. But oddly enough, it never deterred me, you know, and, I, and it wasn't even out of a sense of real defiance or, being tough or anything like that because uh, anyone who knows me knows how far from being tough that I am I mean <laughs> couldn't be further from it but but there is a sort of sense that ultimately you only answer to yourself you know you, you can have all of these introjected voices of authority you can have all of these condemnatory voices that maybe are located within some locale in the back of your mind or perhaps in your immediate circumstances but but ultimately the only person you really do have to answer to is yourself mm. you know and, and and those whatever it was that might have inspired you at some point in your life it inspired you for a reason you relate to it for a reason and it's it's more important to i think be able to acknowledge that, to be able to explore that, to be able to uh, fulfill as much as possible any kind of latent sense of potential, any kind of 
personal valency that you might possess rather than just go along, just, just conform. I mean, we're, we're in a time now of such passivity, of such submissiveness, of such conformity. And, and, and things like this do really serious damage culturally and personally and socially in every other way. And I think that people need to realize that their responsibility to themselves is also a sort of a greater responsibility as well. Yes. I know that all sounded incredibly preachy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, actually, what you said, which was a quote I always remember. I went, this is when we went to America once, and we were, we'd seen this guy called Mike, Mike, Robin, uh, Mike Robbins, I think it was is his it name. Is it Tony, Tony Robbins? Tony, no, it's Mike Reynolds. But I, have, oh. I did go to a, a five-day workshop with Tony Robbins once. That's mm. another story. But Mike Reynolds, and he did something called Earthships. He would build these kind of... Uh, homes out of kind of tires and cans and bottles and they were off grid so there was no electricity water you had to sort of collect all that and they, these were kind of in the deserts but his early ones were a bit of a disaster you know in a lot of ways but what he said I remember hearing him talk and he was very charismatic he said I need the freedom to fail because every time I build something and there's a mistake I then learn and I build the next one better and then and hopefully, you know, you make less mistakes, but, you know, he, you, you eventually get into, okay, but I, I need to have a go because I can't, it can't just be theoretical in the classroom or on a bit of paper. I need to put this kind of building together. And the first time it was like, my God, this is so hot. You can fry an egg on the table. So I need to change it slightly and then we'll build the next one. And then hopefully we'll get that sorted. And I always like that thing that he said, you know, the freedom to fail, because it was like, okay, you can then come back and then do it again, but next time learn from it. And I think, you know, so it's not a complete cliche. It's like, oh yeah, that's quite nice. Because when you're at school, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, don't bother. You can't do that. No, you haven't done that. You haven't passed this. You know, there's a quick kind of like, yeah, you, you're good at this, you're bad at that kind of thing. And that feels quite, at a young age, you, you're sort of emotionally scarred really for the rest of your life. Because it's yeah. like, oh yes, I, I can't do it because I was told I couldn't when I was eight, you know, so um, yeah. There you go. That's a bit preachy as well. So well, we're not really, but but if you if you really think about it in the literal sense, you know, what one thing to to go back even before punk rock or anything like that, and talk about when people used to talk about the psychedelic experience. But if you really think about the literal meaning of that, was I mean, was about expanding consciousness. I mean, the the literal words psyche and delos mean to make real the soul to actually expand experience to its ultimate length. But what we have as the opposite of that is what's reductionist, which if you were to define it in psychiatric terms is psychotic. And so therefore to tell people that they are limited to this, that or the other, they, that they, they, are, they are following this narrow furrow that they can only exist within one particular piece of the maze is to reduce them to a psychotic state. So, you know, that, we're, that these are quite, quite stark choices when one thinks about it, you know. And when I think about so many of the people that were in charge of um, the educational system in Ireland, the term psychotic is, well, almost polite. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, but are you, are you sort of referring to things like, oh, you can take the red pill or the blue pill and depend on what you you sort of 
Yes. Well, I, I think there is an element of that, yeah. But I but I often think that's even a little bit a little bit of a simplification in the sense that I think that you know people people are, are so encouraged most of the time to define themselves within such narrow parameters. I think it, it comes down a lot more to that a lot of the time. This this idea that I mean perhaps it's not that prevalent on some levels today, but I mean, I, I can certainly remember when the, the idea was, well, that's not for the likes of us, you know? I mean, even to talk about writing, when I, when I was a kid and, you know, when I, I'd be reading comic books or reading books or writing or drawing, and my parents would say to me, well, you're never gonna make any money at that. But the ironic thing is, well, yes, I did. I did make some money at that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's a sort of crass example, but, but you know, it's, there's no reason for people to keep, you know, limiting themselves based on very, you know, spurious concepts of identity, you know? And I, and I always think that that is one thing that I always see as a bit negative about what music used to be like in, especially in the 70s and into the 80s as well, was that, was that weird form of tribalism where you were allowed to like one band but not another band or, you, or if you belonged to one scene, you couldn't have friends with people in another one and, you know, the Teds were supposed to be against punks and skinheads were supposed to be against something else and all of that sort of thing that always was so pointlessly divisive because they're all... If you think about it, these are all people from pretty much the same kind of backgrounds, sharing very similar experiences, but be made to feel antagonistic towards each other for for no good reason, really. Unless yeah. one wanted to, you know, look upon it from perhaps a sociological point of view, which, you know, well... I guess uh, a part of that, I don't know if it's completely true, but there was a sort of, I suppose, the football hooligan, you know, where you, and I think the hooligan probably still does want to have a fight, but you sort of identify with a, a team and the, with the same with the band, because it, where I grew up, you know, it was kind of very rock, you know, mm. heavy metal. So status quo were the kind of band you just didn't say anything against because you'd get beaten up. And I remember sort of when two-tone the beat came along with you know mm. I just can't stop it and mirror in the bathroom you know like you couldn't pretend you like you couldn't say you liked it because you would just oh you're a mod and just get thumped so you had to go mm, you know no I don't like it at all but you did you know because it's such an amazing record but you know it was that sense that you didn't have denim and long hair and like you know status quo you you would you know fear for your life not completely but you could just get beaten up I yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> uh, there, there was there was an area near me in Dublin, um, and it was notorious for the fact that if you were walking down there, you would be confronted by essentially demonic 13 and 14-year-olds who would demand to know which you preferred, madness or the specials. And you kind of think, well, how the hell do you answer that question? <laughs> But that is very Pacific, actually. God, I, yes, no, that's that's even breaking down the the subculture even more. No, we were just it was just more like, yeah. I mean, you know, just briefly because we've got less than a minute now. But you know, it was very. I mean, the quiz teacher in our day, it must have been like, well, if you're if you're a man, you might go to the chicken factory or you know the farm, and if you're a woman, you go to the jeans factory to sew things, and then you get pregnant and you have babies and have get married. You know, it was almost like that was it. That was our life choices, really. 
And that was it. That, that was that was the seventies. So there you go. But look, this is going to run out. And um, okay. Let's, but but this has been fantastic, David. Thank you yeah, ever so great. much for I've this. I've really enjoyed. It. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and and I'll send you the link links mm-hmm. um and you can always if you, wherever you might have them um on your facebook page or, or website you can always use them because that's always good but thank you ever so much it's been amazing and uh yeah i really appreciate your time so but it's going to go okay. and so be so so if if i want to hear this or somebody else wants to hear it if we just connect to those links we'll be able to hear it that yeah way. indeed there you go that's a brutal way to finish it anyway look massive thank you to david Conway, forgive me the um, time for that interview, a long interview as well. So um, if you want to know any more information, he has got various, um, if you Google David Conway writer, and he has got a website, which is, it's called um, Radical robotbooks.com there you go there you have it so if you want to um, contact me on the c86 show you just look for c86 show on facebook twitter instagram and you can send me a message make sure it's nice and groovy otherwise don't bother also all these have been archived aren't you lucky so you can find those on spotify itunes or Podbean. it's true anyway look um have a great week stay safe